Why have you forsaken me, God, my God? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. All you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. 
the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May the Lord's live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kinship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Why have you forsaken me, God my God? Why have you forsaken me, God my God? Father, when your son hung on the cross, he cried out to you in agony and grief. You gave him strength to endure so that death might be destroyed and life restored. Have mercy on us all our days and preserve us in true faith unto life everlasting. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord.
Had Jesus been an ordinary prisoner, he would not have died that day. It was customary even in that day and age to show enough mercy upon a condemned criminal to give him time to prepare for his death. Jesus of Nazareth, Son of Man and Son of God, King of kings and Lord of lords, despised of the children of men, captured at midnight on Thursday, before nine o'clock on Friday morning is led out to Calvary to die. So bitterly are they opposed to him, so vehemently do they hate him, so grimly are they determined that he must be put out of the way. He is by this time a pitiful, almost a gruesome caricature of a man. Portions of his body have been beaten to a pulpy mass. His back is red and torn by the lashes of the scourge, and his robe is wet with blood. The noble features are defaced by the unrelenting blows of many fists. The eyes are blackened and swollen, the brow and scalp are pierced with a crown of thorns. The hair is matted and filthy. His own blood is mingled with his sweat and with the spit cast upon him by the vilest and most vulgar of human scum. Early on Friday, he is led out to Calvary, and within the hour, the innocent sin-bearer has been nailed to the beams. And he hangs between earth and sky with the hatred of his people, dashing up against him in great waves of sound, their taunts, their laughter, and their curses, beating against his heart like hammer blows from which there is no escape. He looks up to the leaden skies. He looks down at the milling mob. He sees the soldiers, their hands still bloody from the driving of the spikes, gambling with dice for his clothing. He sees his own people, sons and daughters of Abraham, frightfully misled by false and wicked leaders, shouting their hatred and contempt. And he opens his mouth to speak. But what does he say? Does he curse these soldiers who had begun his torture? Does he rebuke his people for their ignorance? Is he bitter? Resentful? Does he want revenge? No. His words almost take us by surprise, for far from anything we expect. He asks his father to have mercy on those below. But maybe that is what we'd expect from this sinless Son of God. For after all, it's this very same mercy with which he assures us daily that we have our Father's forgiveness. We have come to know so dearly the mercy and compassion which made Jesus cry out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do.
There are several methods of crucifixion, just as there were several kinds of crosses. The cross, for example, was sometimes fashioned in the shape of an X, and sometimes in the shape of a T. More often, perhaps, it was the type of cross we see in our customary crucifix, with a projection above the crossbar to carry the parchment superscription, which declared to every spectator the nature of the accused crime. When they came to Golgotha that gloomy Friday morning, there were three men to be crucified, Jesus and two criminals. One, Jesus, was guilty of nothing. The others guilty of crimes warranting the worst punishment the state could offer. With mingled emotions, they must have watched one another as each in turn submitted to the ordeal of crucifixion. Two of them were crucified, we suppose, by the brute force of the soldiers who labored with all their strength to hold them down. Once the nails had pierced the unwilling flesh, they lay still, numbed by the shock of it all, almost unconscious, as they were lifted up and the crossbeams with pegs and ropes were put into place. The third submitted quietly, with a dignity that made them wonder in silent agony that aroused in the hearts of those hardened soldiers an unwitting admiration. It was after this execution had begun that the two criminals, not nearly so weak as Jesus because they had suffered not nearly so much, began a strange conversation. Both of them at first reviling this man who had the place of honor between them. One of them particularly cursing him with a vehemence that was born of bitter rebellion and unbearable pain. But the other, after watching a while, soon changed his mood, rebuked his blasphemous companion, and in faith said to the man upon the central cross, Lord, remember me when you, come in, when you enter into your kingdom. With the dignity and the majesty of a mighty king, tempered by the warmth and the kindness of a godly love, Jesus comforted him. He promised this criminal that his horrible suffering would not only soon be over, but that this, his last on earth, would be his first in heaven. He told him paradise awaited him. Jesus held up to this dying man the vision of the Garden of Eden restored, a scene of beauty, innocence, and peace, where the stain and defilement of sin was absent and a new and perfect life would begin. We hear Jesus fling open wide the doors of heaven, when he said to the criminal next to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise.
A small group of Jesus' friends, mostly women, braved the scorn and ridicule and remained at Calvary on that dark Good Friday. Three hours before Jesus' death, a number of them, including the beloved disciple John and three or four women, approached the cross to linger there a while. Most of the disciples had taken offense at their master and had gone into hiding. Only John was not afraid of exposing himself to ridicule and danger by being near to Jesus on Calvary. That same love he felt for his master he showed to Jesus' mother Mary, who stood near the cross too, standing with her, supporting and comforting her. Perhaps, Mary recalled when back in the temple, she had carried in her arms the precious child, whom she, above all others, knew to be a unique and wonderful gift of God. Perhaps beneath the cross now, she heard again the words of Simeon, words that she had never forgotten, words which had burned themselves into her memory. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that is spoken against. And a sword will pierce your own soul too, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now she began to understand. There it was, the sign that is spoken against, the uplifted cross, and to it they had nailed the child become man, the son of hers who was also the son of God. Here it was at last, the sword that was to pierce her soul. Now at last she knew. Jesus, seeing them there, himself unmindful of his own excruciating pain, thought of his mother and her needs and made provision for them. From that time on, John was to be like a son to Mary, someone to love and to be close to. From that time on, Mary was to be like a mother to John, someone for John also to love and take care of as he had displayed here at the foot of the cross. You and I, too, know this same love and concern of Jesus who similarly cares for us not only in our spiritual needs, but in our physical concerns as well. We hear Jesus care about all the needs of Mary and of us when he says from the cross, Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, behold your mother.
There was nothing the least bit humane about crucifixion. It was intended to be quite the opposite. It was, in fact, the most painful and barbaric manner of inflicting the death penalty ever devised by the unbelievable cunning and incredible cruelty of man. The agonies of crucifixion were intended to last a long time. And even the cross was so constructed as to bring about a slow and tortured death. There was, for example, a saddle-like projection which supported the body just enough to keep it from being torn down by its own weight where the nails had pierced the hands. The feet were not always spiked, but were sometimes tied to the timber with ropes. The feet of Jesus were pierced by a great rough nail. Under ordinary circumstances, the victim did not die directly from the wounds. There was at first, of course, a loss of blood and the experience of shock. After the clotting process had stopped the flow of blood, the blood was forced to the head and gangrene set in at the wounds. The victim became first feverish, then cold, and soon he experienced a flaming, devouring thirst from which eventually, sometimes later, days later, he died. Meanwhile, he could barely move because of the pain it occasioned in the wounds. Through it all, his palpitating figure was tormented by flies, by biting and crawling insects. You shudder at the mere description. But Christ experienced even greater suffering. There came a moment of darkness in Jesus' tortured and tormented soul. A moment equivalent to a whole eternity in hell. It was then that he cried out to his God who had forsaken him. But no longer did Jesus address God in heaven as his Father, but as a righteous God demanding payment for sins. In the agony of Gethsemane, so intense was his sweat, was as great drops of blood. His prayer still was, O my Father. Likewise, he addressed him as Father in the first word from the cross, as well as in the last. But this moment was different. At this moment, Jesus fulfilled what was said of him. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. At this moment, he was utterly forsaken and abandoned by God. At this moment, he, as he suffered the very pangs of hell, there was no father to whom he could look, but only the righteous and stern God. This suffering was infinitely more intense than we can ever imagine. Only one who had been actually and completely forsaken by God could explain what it meant. And no human being still on this side of the grave has ever been completely forsaken by God. There is only one cause for which God ever forsakes anyone, and that cause is sin. Here we see what it meant when the Bible says that God made Christ to be sin for us. Only by being truly forsaken by God could the full price of redemption be paid. Indeed, we have been dearly bought. And while we amply deserve to be forsaken by him, we now know that we need never be forsaken because Christ our Lord and Savior was forsaken in our stead. We know that it was our pain and abandonment that Jesus suffered when he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me?
Jesus had gone through more than 15 hours of enormous strain and torture without a drink. And he must have thirsted long before he came to Golgotha. On his arrival there, he had rejected the doped wine which was offered him as a sedative. After hanging on the cross for six hours, his naked body exposed to the sun, ridden with fever, emaciated and by this time dehydrated, the thirst must have become virtually unbearable. But what we want never to forget is that he bore this suffering willingly for us. He could have come down from the cross as his tormentors suggested. He was the Son of God. But he didn't. In fact, he didn't even cry out in vengeance against those who put him on this cross with their nails, their rejection, their sin. Rather, he asked forgiveness for them, and the only expression of physical need to come from his lips was this fifth word. A word filled with meaning for you and me because it proves the reality of his human nature and the reality of his suffering. We know Jesus was our real, authentic substitute. He felt the pangs of hell and suffered because of it. His body reacted from that suffering and Jesus expressed it with these words. I thirst. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent For some hours now, the suffering sin-bearer has been hanging on the cross and the end was rapidly approaching. The loss of tissue fluids had reached a critical level. The compressed heart was struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood to the tissues and the tortured lungs were making a frantic effort to inhale small gulps of air. 
The markedly dehydrated tissues sent their flood of stimuli to the brain. He had suffered hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue was torn from his lacerated back as he moved up and down against the rough timbers of the cross. Then another agony began. A deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium, the sac surrounding the heart, slowly filled with serum and began to compress the heart. Death was near now, much nearer than his friends out on the fringes imagined. Some of the crowd, disturbed by the strange unearthly darkness which had already had lingered more than an hour, were on their way home the more callous among them disappointed, like spectators leaving the baseball park in the seventh inning of a game that threatens to be called off by rain. Others went home shaking their head, strangely disturbed with an uneasy feeling that something was terribly wrong. They could not put their finger on it. This was no ordinary crucifixion. But others stayed, and they heard Jesus speak once more. What they heard wasn't the gasp of a man breathing his last as they expected, but rather a shout of victory. While his enemies were gloating over his apparent defeat, his shout of triumph came forth like the mighty cry of victory, a cry that said salvation was won. With this greatest single word ever uttered, Jesus announced the consummation of the assignment given him by the Father. Finished now was his redemptive work, the work of reconciliation and atonement. Finished was his time of humility. Soon, glory and honor would be given him on high. The dominion and power of the prince of hell had been broken, and Satan had been crushed under his heel. Paradise lost had become paradise regained. What meaning these last words have for us. No longer need we look to ourselves, wondering what we must do to get back into the good graces of God. No longer need we worry that our lives aren't pure enough and that when the judgment comes, we will be handed over to damnation. All that was necessary for our forgiveness had been taken care of. When Jesus said those words, it is finished.
it is finished. It was a cry that went down into hell. It was a cry that rose into the very courts of heaven. It was a cry that proclaimed the victory over sin and death and hell. Just one thing more. He is about to breathe his last, and his breath is very labored now. For a moment, he is very still, and some, looking up, think he is dead. But not yet. For a while, there is silence, for the crowd is watching, and even the worst one among his enemies are still. The silence is penetrating. It makes them shiver. It makes them wonder. There is only the sputter of the torches that the soldiers have lighted to illuminate that ghastly scene. And for those who are close enough, the steady dripping of the blood. Look, he moves. The head is lifting. He seems once more to be summoning his remaining strength. It was the hour of the evening sacrifice when his last words rang out And these were words that commended himself to his father. He was confident that in death his father would watch out for him. By this prayer, Jesus indicated that he would calmly and peacefully fall asleep, confident of his imminent resurrection on Easter morning. Death was the last fulfillment of the law for Jesus, but it would not be the end for him. He would be kept safe in his father's hand. Finally, he could allow his body to die. With one last surge of strength, he once again pressed his torn feet against the nail, strengthened, straightened his legs, took a deep breath, and uttered his final cry. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Christ became obedient for us unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Almighty God, graciously behold this your family, for whom our Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be betrayed and delivered into the hands of sinful men to suffer death upon the cross. Through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.